I think a materialist approach to things is very, very consistent with uh, my experience in Christian social justice. I feel like the, the deeper I get into anarchist practice, the deeper my faith is getting at the same time. I would hope that you know, securing means of life for all would be something all people of faith would say, oh yes, that's at the basis of what we believe. Those who are most marginalized know the most about the truth, good and the beautiful. To me, it's less that I think building class solidarity is a bad thing, as much as it seems like if you don't attend to things like anti-black racism, um, that's always going to get in the way of building class solidarity, actually. And when you go back, you find that a lot of uh, revolutionary grassroots participatory movements, the, the precursors to what you could call um, the barrio assemblies and these like, you know, grassroots neighborhood organizations, a lot of these were sponsored by the church. What does it mean to say that the Christian tradition is internally contradictory and there are antagonisms there? Um, you're always uh, being faithful to some aspects and betraying other aspects. Welcome to The Magnificast, a podcast about Christianity leftist politics. I'm Matt Bernico. And I'm Dean Detlaw. This week on the show, we got everyone's favorite. Uh, well, okay, you he he wasn't your favorite, but now he is. Everyone's new favorite um, Marxist uh, philosopher, Daniel Saunders, <laughs> who is here with a, a really cool essay called Ideology, Fetishism, Apophaticism, Marxist Criticism and Christianity. Um, it's a very neat essay that's doing a lot of things in 22 pages, published in New Black Friars. Uh, we'll link the uh, the essay so you can read it in the show notes. Um, it's such a cool uh, article because it's um, well, it's uh, it's doing the Marxist Christian thing like like we like to do on the show. That's for sure. But also, it's uh, asking the question: uh, What if Marx was kind of a religious thinker without being a Christian? Yeah, it's a really fascinating take on a lot of things. A, a lot of okay, so I mean that that's generally very interesting. But then there's so many other like ins and outs of this essay that you're gonna love. So uh, I don't know. Hang out a minute and listen to Daniel talk about it. Uh, Dean, what what do you have to say? What's your part in all this? <laughs> um, I'll just say I, I really like Daniel. I've gotten a chance to work with him on, on a few different uh, learning projects together and reading a lot of text together. And I really uh, appreciate the way that his mind works and the questions that he's asking. And I think he's at in top form for sure in this essay. Um, it's really fun. I think uh, Daniel says in the beginning of the, the chat that... Uh, uh, a lot of the themes come through from our show too. And that's really neat to kind of see somebody dialoguing with similar thinkers, similar questions and problems. So yeah, if you like the show, I guess uh, Daniel's essay is like the smartest version of uh, what we talk about <laughs> down here, which it's I appreciate. <laughs> yeah, it's true. It's got all of our faves in it. Uh, Jose Miranda's in there. Marika Rose is in there. Enrique Ducell shows up, Derrida's in there, Marx, oh my gosh, all of them. Everyone, <laughs> all of our, our our whole bibliography made it into this uh, this one essay. It's great. That and more. That and more. <laughs> yeah, it's true. That and more is right. Uh, before we get there, let me give a quick plug uh, for our own podcast here on our podcast. Um, I've paid myself $100 <laughs> to give this advertisement, and here we go. Hey, if you like this podcast, what you should do is go over to patreon.com slash the Magnificast and you should uh, subscribe to us on that Patreon page. If you do, um, at different levels, uh, you get all kinds of different fun little rewards. Um, if you uh, at sort of the lower levels, you get early episodes whenever we have them, which is, uh, you know, sometimes, sometimes not. We're busy people. What can I say? Um 
but sometimes you get them. It's great. Uh, you also can get access to our special behind the paywall podcast, the lock in where we talk about, um, current events and answer Reddit questions with our fictional youth group. I mean, or not fictional. If you think about it, um, people it's going to have an NFT to... soon and then it will be real. That, that's right. It'll have an NFT soon and it will be real. Uh, you can, man, if anyone wants to buy an NFT from me, let me know. <laughs> I don't have one yet, but I could sure I could make one up for you. I'll write NFT in a piece of paper and mail it to you for $1 million. Anyways, you can also uh, get an invite to our discord channel, which is very fun. Um, and uh, I don't know. You, uh, if you were on our Discord channel, you'd already been reading this article from Daniel Saunders. So that that's uh, that's what I can tell you. Um, yeah. Anyways, if you can't uh, give us any money, that's totally fine. It's uh, no big deal. We don't blame you. Um, but you could go give us a review on iTunes. That would be really cool if you give us a, a big the big five stars that we all love so much, and leave us a little a little note there. We'd really appreciate it. Uh, it helps with the algorithm, or that's what people keep telling me. Who knows? That could all be. A lie. Um, it's a lie that makes podcasters talk about uh, Apple Podcasts on their <laughs> Probably. shows. Probably. I wouldn't put it past them. <laughs> Anyways, uh, do all of that. Do do one of those things at least. Um, but for now, let's go to Daniel uh, and hear about his essay. Thanks for coming on the show, Daniel. Uh, Daniel's a, a longtime friend of the show, I guess, and friend off the show. Uh, good, good person all around. Really grateful that you were able to jump in and chat with us this week. Um, whenever we have somebody on the show who's written something, we ask them to give a, an elevator pitch for their project. And Daniel has written this really neat essay about commodity fetishism and Christianity and a lot of other things. So, uh, Daniel, imagine this is a really tall building with a very slow elevator and uh, tell us what it's all about. Yeah, thanks, Dean. Um, first, I just got to say that uh, I really appreciate the invite to be on the show. And I guess it's a sort of longtime listener, first time caller situation. Um, big fan of everything you guys <laughs> are doing. And um, I think as we get into this, we'll see that a lot of what's in this article is has a lot to do with uh, the show and I've been influenced by the show. So um, appreciate that. Uh, so the elevator pitch, uh, I hope it's a, a very tall building and or a very slow elevator because uh, the pitch is um, <laughs> kind of difficult to condense, but um, there, there are a lot of different levels here, probably too many as I realized sort of a couple days before the deadline that this was due for publication that sort of why am I trying to discuss uh, this problem now? Um, but here is my attempt at sort of outlining the, the general, um, the, the flow of the article. So the, the central sort of theme is um, Marx's theory of commodity fetishism uh, and money in particular, and how commodity fetishism relates to a discussion of both capitalism and religion and how uh, they influence one another. So there's two components to this. One is how capitalism is like a religion, but also the flip side is how is religion shaped by capitalism's logic. Uh, and something I get into is how religion and different sort of linguistic or symbolic structures take on the sort of meta form of money as this ultimate commodity. Um, and I don't talk about this in the paper, but I was just thinking of what is a 
a sort of concrete example of this. And um, you guys did a, a pretty recent episode on um, commodity fetishism. And I was thinking back to that and sort of how we have all these sort of vague things floating around our everyday world under capitalism, the stock market, commodities for sale, uh, consumerist practices, marketing techniques. And I guess the primary question that commodity fetishism gets at is, um, are these things actually normal? Uh, they appear sort of natural and self-evident in our day-to-day -day life, but are they, are they normal? Uh, are they just sort of an incidental feature of our economy or are, are they profoundly shaping necessities of our political economy? Um, it's not just one part of life that we can sort of separate out, but is this sort of all-encompassing? And so that's kind of the frame of commodity fetishism that I bring to this paper. Um, and taking that even a step further, it's then possible to talk about the divinity of money. And this is not meant merely as a metaphor, but uh, as something that's probably more real and true than most of us might even realize. Um, and so this divinity of money, I'm sure we'll get into a little later, but um, the, the sort of way that this works is uh, money as um, this sort of er fetishism is something that masks our social relations in day-to-day -day life that you know we we see the stock market and commodities as real but we don't see the underlying social conditions as real or existing so that that element of the mask is really important um so that that is one major aspect of the paper and so then bringing in christianity um i was interested to sort of talk about how is christianity um sort of uh, locked within this logic of money and capitalism, both in how it thinks and how it acts, um, because it is it is evident that it is locked in to it in some sense. Uh, but on the other hand, how might Christianity actually resist that logic of capitalism and money? And uh, there's often a very, I think, simplistic sort of Christian answer to this. Uh, and I know we'll talk about this later, which is, just to sort of kind of throw up theology or um, the gospel message as the answer. And by simply restating doctrine, we can somehow get out of this bind. And in this way, Christianity becomes this sort of separated off or immune element of capitalistic life. Uh, and this, what I sort of like to call it, the, the mere Christianity mode. Um, but uh, that's actually not the case, I think. I think it's a... Uh, Christianity is incredibly bound up with these things. And so uh, I think the lens of commodity fetishism can help us get to how that operates. Um, and so uh, the paper asks, um, sort of taking this Marxist standpoint, um, can we come to a better understanding of Christianity's complicity in a capitalist logic while also recognizing the ultimate command of Jesus that you cannot serve mammon. Um, and sort of one of the ways that I do that later on in the paper is to bring in this idea of the apophatic, um, apophaticism, referring to um, this tradition of negative theology, uh, just meaning that um, this sort of theology that uh, focuses on what can't be said about God or that denies this sort of anything of essence in 
in the divine. And I try to use that as a way to kind of link this Marxist and Christian um, uh, way of looking at capitalism by thinking through how the apophatic might actually help us take off the, that mask of the fetish. Um, and so I talk about anti-fetishism as being sort of this, um, the ultimate way to be a Christian, I guess. And uh, I think the, the sort of reason why this is all important is that um, when, when we exist under commodity fetishism and capitalism, we're existing as alienated, right, from other people, from our own labor. Um, and so we're sort of, there's this Marxist line, uh, tradition of alienation that talks about humans being made into things. And I think that has a lot of resonances with, uh, with what the gospel has to say. And so uh, ultimately all these things converge on this question of um, uh, how do we describe alienation? And the flip side of that is how uh, do we then overcome alienation? What does a non-alienated world look like and how can Christianity and Marxism work together to sort of help us uh, get there? That's the pitch. <laughs> We're there. <laughs> yeah, it's a good pitch. Cool. That very tall building. It's a great pitch. We've got to the top floor and uh, it's it's all good. This sounds like the paper I read for <laughs> sure. Um, <laughs> well, um, I, yeah, like you said, I mean, I, I want to talk about a lot of these all these big ideas, but before we get to them, maybe we can kind of do some of the scaffolding here uh, to set up the article for the, the listeners who haven't read it. Um, just like, uh, you know, you mentioned the, you mentioned Christianity's complicity with commodity fetishism, or I'm sorry, you, you mentioned Christianity's uh, complicity with capitalism. And uh, maybe you could talk about that a little bit more. Like, what does that mean sort of materially? Um, and then like, you know, how does commodity fetishism play, play into the Christianity? Like, I guess, how are these things really working out in the world? Yeah, um, there's a lot of scaffolding. So um, I will attempt to give a fuller picture. Um, but yeah, I'm really interested in um, if I can maybe take one or two steps back, but to just to set up why um, this idea of fetishism is important, because it's it's pretty abstract um, when you're just kind of hearing it and thinking about it. But um, I was really struck by this, the way in which this particular thinker, um, Etienne Balabar, um, uses uh, or talks about fetishism. Um, Balabar is a French Marxist and was a student of Louis Althusser's, who I know you've got, you guys have talked about on this podcast. Um, but I was really interested in sort of, he talks about uh, the development of Marx's thought from uh, his early writings, um, which have a lot to do with uh, this notion of ideology and uh, as he goes on in later works like uh, in Capital, um, the the theory of ideology kind of transforms into this theory of fetishism. And that was really intriguing to me because um, they're obviously kind of both essential um, critical frameworks, but they're kind of like talking about these two very different things. And the way that uh, Balabar describes it is uh, ideology is sort of within this... Um, locked in this, the order of belief and how um, sort of, uh, if you think about it as like the division of class society um, and how the state operates 
um, and these um, ways of controlling classes. Uh, so it's like this vertical dimension. But the fetish kind of transposes that into this horizontal dimension uh, where he talks about the order of perception. So I was really interested in exploring that, um, that shift. And I totally lost the thread of your question. So uh, I will punt it back to you, I guess, <laughs> to redirect me. <laughs> no, I think you're, you're doing great. You're, you're doing a great job. Um, I, I guess like, um, I, I don't know, may, maybe you can say something, though, like, uh, how does how does Christianity um, uh, like tie into commodity fetishism? Like, are these is Christianity a logic that creates commodity fetishism or is it the other way around? I guess, how are these two ideas sort of linked together? So, um, yeah, to go back to this idea of uh, how Christianity relates to commodity fetishism. Um, so. Uh, I was really interested to follow um, sort of the minutia of how Marx in, in Capital um, talks about how fetishism comes out of commodity exchange. And like I said, you guys did that episode on commodity fetishism. So um, I think people have sort of a, a general idea of how that works with the difference between use value and exchange value and all of that. But um, what Marx's argument uh, sort of centers on is that um, the fetishism of commodities is this expression of alienation um, in the form of money. So as you sort of separate out use value and exchange value, um, money is sort of this thing that comes out of those two things as being this... Um, universal equivalent that connects all different commodities. And that this universal equivalent is this abstract mediating factor that interlocks with everything else. Um, and money is the sort of symbol of this um, universal abstraction. Um, and uh, what I was interested in is kind of taking uh, that movement into this universal equivalent and rule by abstraction and bringing in a couple of other authors to think about um, how that universal equivalent like um, kind of starts to influence all these other different spheres. So um, that is where you get this. Um, that's where Christianity comes in, I guess, because um, going back to what I said about the sort of um, that horizontal sphere, um, everything sort of in that horizontal sphere gets brought into that universal equivalent, including Christianity. So um, then it's sort of possible to talk about um, how Christianity gets um, shaped by uh, the rule of money, essentially. No, I think it makes a lot of sense, though, because I, I mean, like when you put it that way and you're kind of pairing the ideas of Christianity and uh, money through the lens of commodity fetishism, I don't know. It Money just takes on this um, extremely religious, like a theological character that I don't think I would have really recognized had you not drawn it out the way that you did. I mean, um, money is, this, like, is the universal mediator that sort of draws all these different factors in, like, you know, social structures like Christianity or, or whatever else, you know. 
it, it is like a it is like a weird Tower of Babel kind of moment, right? Where it's like this big thing that uh, it takes it takes in everything. It can kind of translate everything to one another. Um, I think it's yeah. I mean, you're right. It makes a lot of sense though to look at it through that that lens of uh, sort of a religious structure, even though it's something that uh, we think of as sort of uncaring and secular. It, it uh, it's theological. I think yeah, when you really think about it. I guess this is also a, a good point to make, which is that um, it seems like a lot of the time um, Christians and a lot of other people would want to talk about money as this sort of incidental thing, as if it's something that can be sort of bracketed off um, with regard to the economy and whether that means sort of like in Christian terms, like how we can sort of live apart from capitalism or even sort of in a more sort of like uh, political reformist way of like thinking about how we can, you know, sort of shape the economy to do these different things or um, modern monetary theory was an example I was thinking of, of sort of how can we, um, doctor money to sort of fit the ends that we want. And I guess the this line of pursuit within Marx really drives home this idea that um, we actually can't extract ourselves that easily from these questions because it's, it's so pervasive um, in that sense. And it's pervasive because it's rooted in these social relations, right? It's, it's this um, hidden realm you know, behind Marx's line that it's uh, that the barrier uh, upon which says no entry except on business, you know, it's this hidden masked secret realm, but it, it's the real world. That's the world that we're living. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. And well, that that kind of it's the real world thing. I mean, it, it links the ideology and fetishism stuff that you were saying get parsed out differently in Marx over time in a way that I think is really useful um, I, I want to ask you some more questions about Christianity and, and Marxist dialogue in a minute, but uh, I feel like it's it's natural to ask you the a question about idolatry at this point. You know, you you turn to the apophatic tradition in an interesting way to critique fetishism. The way you're talking now kind of sets money up, as you're saying, as this kind of a divinity, um, this thing that draws stuff into itself. I, I think like a lot of Christians, you know, even if they you could they do talk about money as a, a kind of neutral thing, but you could convince maybe the more progressive ones to be like, yeah, it has this idolatrous hold over us. Um, but there's, you know, more than one way to talk about idolatry under capitalism, maybe more and less productive ones. Uh, so what do, what do you think a Marxist approach gives people that like, I don't know, just a theological response to this is idolatry doesn't, or maybe even like a romantic approach doesn't give you that same kind of uh, critical edge. What does Marxism do uh, to bring that idolatry critique out? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, the first thing I would say, I guess, about the sort of idolatry question, um, that's one of the things I was uh, very uh, interested in pursuing was uh, within Balabar's argument of this shift from ideology to fetishism. Um, because even the, even the terms themselves hint at something different that's going on because uh, ideology um, and the idol is sort of about um, this kind of like illusory sort of dreamlike image or realm, you know, that's this inverted uh, sort of um, heavenly realm uh, that's inverted from the, the earthly realm. But, but fetishism 
literally comes from a word that means uh, to make or to fashion. So it's it's bound up in in the material world and in how we interact with one another. And so I think that first of all is an interesting component to that that uh, I think um, often doesn't get uh, it's due in in these sorts of conversations. Um, but to your question about uh, what does the Marxist approach give us that a, a theological or, or even like romantic approach doesn't, um, uh, I think this is a really good question because um, this is sort of a very powerful, I guess, rhetorical um, component in this uh, conversation, the, the romantic approach. And by that, I mean this idea that like, we can return to like a better time or a better um, tradition or of, of labor practices, or um, we can sort of will ourselves into this, uh, into sort of these pre-modern values. And there's a lot that I have sympathy with, with a lot of um, those kinds of arguments, but um, it doesn't really get at what is going on with this question of fetishism. Um, because what those uh, lines of approach tend to miss, I think, is this question of um, how under capitalism we are living in this masked world of social relations and that the, uh, the root of all productive labor is under that mask. And labor here is not just, you know, work or toil, but it uh, encompasses all of humanity's efforts it's the connective tissue between people and nature. So it's all these really big questions. Um, and money is like inextricably tied with those two. So um, money is not, you know, just some bad thing that's sort of separated off, but it's inextricably tied to these processes. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, that's what I find so useful about the way that you put it together in the articles that... Uh... There's something, well, this is what Marx is always going on and on about and something you you opened up with. You know, the question of uh, commodity fetishism is like you look around and everything seems like it's normal or, or it appears as normal, but actually it's all extremely weird and like not necessary. Um, and the way in which that it's weird or the way in which it, it appears necessary or, or goes together or something is so hard to uh, get your head around. You know, it's like being a fish and figuring out what water is or something. And the idea that you can kind of use Marx's tools to figure out the specific qualities of money and the specific ways in which it, you know, captivates our attention or captivates our our relationships, I think, is a really strong thing to sort of keep parsing out in a way that Marx does in a particular kind of sense. Yeah, I guess uh, one thing I I sort of wanted to mention, too, um, maybe this was from earlier, but uh, that I think one of the benefits to this approach is um, that it kind of controversially depicts Marx as a religious thinker. Um, and uh, there's kind of some crazy stuff uh, that you can get into with this. One of the texts that I read for this article was um, this book by Jose Miranda, the liberation theologian. Um, called Marx Against the Marxists, uh, but in Spanish, it's called um, uh, El Cristianismo de Marx. And he basically 
tries to argue that Marx was a secret Christian. And I don't think you have to go that far uh, necessarily, but, um, <laughs> but the, the question of, you know, what kind of analysis uh, is in capital, the, the work, at least in the early chapters, um, and to conceive of it as, I guess, like a religious critique, uh, I think brings all this out in really interesting ways. Um, uh, because of course you have, you know, all these references to, uh, kind of these, the sacramental qualities of, of commodities and the theological niceties. Um, but, uh, it's interesting to sort of think, you know, are these really metaphors, um, or are they something more, uh, pervasive? Um, and so I think we, um, you know, considering Marx as a religious thinker sort of in regards to the capitalist economy helps us to center, um, you know, what, what is the true nature of money? Yeah, that's a really interesting way to put it. Um, thinking about Marx as a, a religious thinker. I mean, not, maybe not a yeah. Christian that probably is going <laughs> too far, um, for a lot of reasons, but also that's uh, I mean, so characteristic of Jose Miranda, always kind of taking things maybe a little bit further than they need to go. Um, uh, he's great though. I don't no, no shade for sure. Um, but yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, you know, I don't know. I don't know why, you know, you're, you're kind of talking through, um, Marx is a, a sort of like religious thinker and there is something like, um, there, there is a sort of sense of, uh, of idol smashing and like anti-fetishism within Christianity. I mean, you kind of, you kind of mentioned it as such and you know, that's what Marx is doing here is you can see some kind of, um, similarities, I was thinking about all of those, um, I don't know, all these like re weird moments in the New Testament where uh, where the um, apostles or whoever are like working out whether or not they can eat unclean meats and stuff. And like God has to tell them, like, it's OK now you can do this. No big deal. Here's a weird vision about it falling from heaven. This like sort of like, um, you know, this like sort of smashing of old taboos or something. And uh, maybe there's like a sort of resonance with what Marx is doing in that sense. You know, there's like this. Um, you know, a Christian, a Christian anti-idolatry, you know, not even getting caught up in the, uh, in all of the rules of it all or something. But I think it's a really interesting way to, to put, to put Marx and frame him as a, as a religious type of thinker. Um, on, on all of those like weird threads I just kind of threw out there, um, maybe we can talk about the Marxism and Christianity a little bit more outright. Um, something that your article does is that uh, it does kind of put a little bit more gas in the engine of the Marxist Christian dialogue that has definitely fallen out of academic favor since I guess the cold war is over and whatnot. Um, but uh, you know, some people are still very invested in it like us particularly, but uh, yeah, I mean like, what do you think are some of the main barriers and opportunities of that Marxist Christian dialogue as it may exist or um, you know, not exist right now? <laughs> Yeah, I think um, there are both opportunity, opportunities and barriers. Um, uh, in terms of the opportunities, um, it's, you know, it's not a new dialogue. It's, it's a dialogue that's as old as Marxism itself. Um, uh, one of the things I talk about early on in this article is, you know, how, how the critique of ideology comes out of um, Marx's critique of Feuerbach and has all sorts of things to do with uh, Christianity. So that ties into sort of seeing Marx as this, um, yeah, idol smashing sort of 
uh, critical religious thinker that I think is really interesting. Um, uh, what you just said about the Cold War, it's, you know, the world is significantly different. Um, I think we're not beholden to a lot of these dualisms anymore. So um, things are a lot freer to sort of come together in different ways and pursue different um, different ideas. Um, uh, the opportunity for Christians, I think, is, you know, getting a solid theoretical and scientific basis for ideas about economy and money, because, um, you know, as we know, there's this sort of uh, prophetic uh, strain within a lot of uh, left Christianity that um, can be very rhetorically persuasive, but often um, doesn't have that tie into sort of these very material things. So um, I think uh, I would hope that, you know, this kind of dialogue would be able to um, push Christians in that way. Um, sometimes I find it trickier to answer the question of, you know, what can Marxists get from Christians? <laughs> um, uh, but <laughs> um, I think as I was uh, thinking about, you know, what what is uh, the question of fetishism and what is anti-fetishism, um, there's something there, I think, because um, this, this uh, Christian propensity to anti-fetishism kind of has this, there's an eye out for false gods, uh, which are often invisible to a lot of people. And one of the themes I keep trying to come back to in this paper is uh, if, if the capitalist world is a religious world, then who is able to see it as a religious world as such? And um, I think Christians with this, the sort of um, this anti-fetishistic lens can, can do that even in places where even some Marxists might not, might not be able to. Um, and so there's, uh, there's the, this chance for a lot of interpenetration of concepts and frameworks and, uh, you know, even words like alienation and um, presence can be, you know, kind of taken by, by both sides and reworked in these new ways. So I think that's, um, the, the opportunities I see is that that sort of dialectical coming together to create new ways of looking at these problems. Um, as far as the barriers, I think they're, they're pretty straightforward. Um, it's, it seems all too easy sometimes, you know, just to do a really basic kind of Venn diagram comparison of, you know, how does Christianity does this? Marxism does that. Here's how they come together. Great. You know, um, and, um, <laughs> So there's a, maybe a tendency to kind of just leave it at this kind of sort of overlap or comparison level and not do anything with it. Um, and then, of course, there's the temptation for kind of a vulgar reading on both a Marxist and Christian size that, you know, Christianity is only a fetish or um, Marxism is only this atheist sort of um, worldview. But... Uh, you know, I think one of the things this paper tries to do is to say the actually both sides are much more complex than that. Yeah, I really empathize with what you said. Uh, you know, it, it's hard to see what uh, Marxists can gain from Christianity exactly. Um, I uh, I feel that for sure. I mean, it's such a funny thing because, like, uh, you know, there are Christians who do critique, uh, like, do like sort of political economy critique, like theologically without Marxism. 
And it's like, you know, oh, capitalism is a religion. It has its own liturgy. And like the answer to that is just to do our liturgy more and louder. And like, um, you know, like without without the actual like Marxist lens of understanding the political economy and knowing like kind of like what to do about it, it uh, is such a hopelessly silly thing to be yeah. very invested in. So, uh, yeah, like you said, maybe a, a dialectical approach is good, but I, I would uh, I'm all about this dialectical approach that's very heavy on the Marxist <laughs> side, <laughs> not so much on the Christian side. You know, just like a little bit, uh, you know, like one part Christianity, two parts Marxism or something in that dialectic. Yeah, I have a, I guess, a brief anecdote that might illustrate this. Um when uh, this paper was being reviewed by the journal, um, there was a, it was a blind review, but there was a Marxist reviewer and a Christian reviewer, I guess. Um, and the Marxist guy was like, this is all great. You know, I don't know anything about Christianity. So, uh, but this part's great. And then um, the other, the other reviewer was like, <laughs> I don't know anything about the Marxist part, but the Christianity part needs a lot of work. And <laughs> I was like, yeah, I mean, sometimes it really does feel like you're trying to shoehorn in something, you know, uh, something into uh, a framework that maybe doesn't need it. But um, I think, um, you know, I I am a Christian and there's, there's no way that I can't be a Christian. So it's, uh, that's like something that I have to do for myself anyway. That's just like how, what does my faith have to do with this? And um the this this idea of anti-fetishism i think is is a pretty interesting one for me kind of getting more into that question of christianity um a little more directly the way that you work out and distinguish uh, a christianity that bolsters capitalism and a christianity that unites with marxism to to work against capitalism is something we talk about on the show thematically obviously quite a bit um, but one of the difficult things about that is it, it runs counter to a rhetoric you find on progressive and left Christians that people use, you know, successfully and compellingly to condemn capitalism. Um, and uh, it's a problem that Matt and I are always complaining about <laughs> and trying to figure about out uh, off the air. And I think that you do a great job sorting it out in your essay. So curious to hear you talk more about it. Um, you know, on the one hand, I think that that analysis is right, right? Like, uh, there's something about finding Christianity as a counter logic that that really works um, rhetorically. Uh, but on the other hand, Christians on the left still rely on on the assumption that their Christianity is the true Christianity. And uh, you just like like we we're just saying, you have to just get that piece right. And the rest will kind of fall into place. What do you think about that disconnect? I mean, how can we maybe have a more uh, uh, ambiguous or nuanced approach to Christianity that can sort out uh, our complicity and our resistance and all that kind of mess? Yeah, that is the question, it seems like. Um, yeah, I was very conscious when I was uh, writing this and making that distinction that to, to try to uh, make sure that it didn't sound like, um, you know, this, this spectrum of uh, good Christianity and bad Christianity and that we can easily, you know, separate ourselves off into one or the other. Um, and um, it's it's kind of a framing that I again I uh, borrowed from Miranda, and he uses it kind of very specifically um, in Marx Against the Marxists. An uh, authentic Christianity, he says, is um, that Christianity that um, sort of sees and accepts the social and political implications of the gospel at all times, and that uh, whatever's not authentic Christianity is 
one that says, you know, that, that doesn't make any sense, um, either defers it or dodges the question. Um, and so that was a really interesting way of framing it that I thought kind of avoids this um, kind of moral spectrum, I guess, of uh, neatly separating off um, the good and the bad. And so rather than it being a spectrum, uh, I was trying to conceive of it as this kind of simultaneous um, reservoir to and kind of impetus to both at either, you know, to either mode at any one time. Um, you know, are we either like in any given circumstance, we have the propensity to act sort of in one or the other mode as an authentic Christian or as a non-authentic Christian. And so thinking about it in ways that ties it directly to the social and political implications of, of the gospel. Um, and when I was thinking about it that way, it just made me, you know, this is kind of like the disciples. They're kind of these guys who are running around and always sometimes doing the right thing, but often not. And so I think it's like um, empathizing with them, uh, sort of seeing that, that this, this is an always present um, sort of choice that we have to make. Um, and so, uh, yeah, so I think if we, you know, the there's a tendency to want to um, kind of prioritize a prophetic rhetoric um, on the left in Christian spheres, but if it's not tied to that kind of material and political dimension of the liberation of the poor and standing with the oppressed, that um, it kind of gets hollowed out in that sense. Um, and and this is why I think the Marxist critique of religion is good and should be kind of um, taken in stride by Christians, I guess, because it forces us to see that religion is not a separate sphere, but it's uh, bound up in the social world, which is kind of, uh, you know, the one of the great Marxist insights about um, life and society, I guess, is that it, uh, the social kind of takes on this objective dimension. Um, and so, you know, nothing is separate, separated out from that social dimension. And so we can never get too comfortable um, with a kind of like superior Christianity, you know, that we could never um, kind of stoop to certain levels or something like that. Um, but we have to have the, the humility, I guess, to apply that critical lens to ourselves. Um, and so uh, one, one of the other thinkers that I brought in in this paper, uh, Enrique Dussel, who's another liberation theologian, I really like the way he framed it because he calls this, um, uh, you know, rather than conceiving it as a return to some kind of true, pure source, uh, it's remembering the urgency of this commandment to, you have the responsibility to the poor. Um, and so that uh, that's like this always present um, sort of reminder, I guess, that we need to return to this, um, the essential call of the gospel. Yeah, it's a really interesting way to put it. Um... I mean, and it does help like, okay, I mean, the the difficulty, I think, is is clear because it's not just a problem with um, like theology or something or even with like historical theology or even history or whatever. It's a problem of, um, you know, like the organizing capacity of Christianity for doing that work, um, you know, 
like uh, progressive Christians like sort of like need some way to um, I mean, I guess kind of like what you're saying with Ducelle is is uh, remind people of that urgency. And uh, I guess it's just like really interesting to to find a way to do that without refer like without falling back on the um, all too familiar uh, tropes of evangelical Christianity or I guess like just sort of <laughs> just regular Christianity, I guess, that that uh, positions itself as like the one sort of right way to think about uh, God or the gospel or Jesus or something. Uh, so it's cool to hear you work that out in a in a different way. Um, that preserves some of the power of of the gospel or, or that organizing capacity from Christianity. It's really good. Um, something that I'm sure I'll keep thinking about forever. Um, sort of like a little bit of a switch in the conversation, but uh, I think it's really fascinating. Uh, not only are you drawing in all of these like really fascinating liberation theologians and um, Marxist philosophers, uh, but also you're pulling in um, some of the, the postmodern faves. Um, you got a little bit of Derrida in there, and that's great. A lot of Marxists and people on the left, I think, like to criticize and shun postmodern philosophy because it's like, uh, I don't know, it's uh, too idealistic or whatever. There's all kinds of different critiques that uh, Marxists make of postmodernism. Um, but, uh, I mean, the official position of the Magnificast is that postmodern philosophy is uh, usually pretty good. <laughs> as long as it's uh, good for subverting capitalism. Uh, but I think your essay is a really good example of like why that criticism, that, that sort of like straightforward criticism of postmodern philosophy being bad is a bad criticism. Um, so yeah, I don't, I don't know. Like, what do you think of that discourse at large? Uh, do you want to talk about Derrida and maybe like the, the place that his work uh, takes in your essay? Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's funny. I, I did not want to engage with Derrida. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, <laughs> nobody does. Uh, it was kind of compelled <laughs> to, and I, this is something I've just noticed a lot about my reading and writing. Is I always, I always sort of end up with these weird, incomprehensible French postmodernists, and I like, I never really know what to do with them, but they, they always just come back there. And so, um, yeah, they're yeah. I mean, ontology haunting um, you <laughs> was. Uh, <laughs> A major theme and and how I was using Derrida but um yeah I think specifically in sort of the, this paper and one of the things we haven't really talked about yet was the the usage of the apophatic tradition but it was important to to bring sort of the postmodern discourse in um with regard to that because um if the very, you know, at the very least, because um, that tradition has made a lot of use of um, the apophatic as a concept. And this is where um, Marika Rose's book, Theology of Failure, was really helpful in working through those. But um, uh, yeah, I mean, Derrida was um, sort of kind of a key component in, in um, back going back to something I mentioned at the, the beginning, um, this sort of um, the logic of how um, out of commodity fetishism, this idea of the of a universal equivalent, this sort of abstract um, thing comes to to be separated out from that and kind of encompasses everything in that. And so there's you know this element of questioning that sort of essence um, that is really key to a lot of this work. Um, and it's also really concerned with language and the sphere of the symbolic. You know, it's 
uh, really easy in Marxism to talk about the material and the economic base, which is, you know, the, primarily the most important. But um, with some of these authors, it, there's this very intriguing extrapolation that the, you know, the world of, of the symbolic um, language and sort of the interconnections between um, the social kind of takes on its own uh, materiality, I guess. It's, it constitutes its own sort of objective world. Um, and so one of the things I was trying to do in this paper is to kind of reason out how, how does, uh, that material or economic shape that symbolic world. Um, so I think, uh, there's definitely maybe a danger in putting too much stock in some of that analysis. Um, but it can be helpful to the extent that it kind of, um, you know, rearranges or shifts things to where you can kind of come at something from a different angle. And uh, another one of the um, postmodern French guys I used in this article, um, Jean-Joseph Gou, uh, who, you know, does this crazy thing where he brings together Marx and Freud uh, and um, extrapolates on this idea of the universal equivalent as um, kind of being this, uh, the ultimate sort of element of alienation in all these different ways. Um, and so, uh, yeah, there's definitely something really useful about that. But um, just to go a little bit farther on Derrida, um, uh, his book Spectres of Marx was really important for this paper because he talks about um, idolatry and uh, commodity fetishism. Um, and he's also uh, makes this really intriguing point that um, in Capital and in the critique of commodity fetishism, the religious analogy of commodities is really the only possible analogy because um, it sets itself up as the sort of uh, ghostly specter of material conditions. Um, and so he has a lot that's really great to say about that. And uh, what I found it really interesting to think about in connection with Christianity was like, uh, that the fetish then becomes this kind of parody of incarnation or presence, that it's this like, it is a body, but it's like a, a ghostly body. It's like this, um, you know, uh, Marx's word is um, sensuous uh, suprasensibility or something like that. Like it's both a bodily form, but it's not actually <laughs> existing. And that is taken as sort of this like, um, as this picture of how alienation works under capitalism, that we are not fully sort of embodied, present people in our social relationships, but that we interact through this really alienating universal equivalent. Um, so yeah, there's, uh, I, I found a lot of use out of them, uh, out of Derrida in particular for this paper, but, um, I kind of never know what to do with uh, a lot of the postmodern thinkers that I read, but uh, <laughs> I think it's, yeah, I mean, it's, there, there's always enough for me anyway of kind of shifting the framework a little bit um, to kind of reinvigorate Marxism. Yeah, for sure. I mean, um, I don't think any of us really know what to do with them, but uh, they are, they are there for whatever reason. And um, I, I think the, the reason I bring up the Derrida piece and it's great to hear you talk about it 
is I think that's where a lot of the article really came together for me. I think that's how it really kind of clicked in my brain um, <laughs> with the most with the most complicated French philosopher. Um, <laughs> that's that's why it makes sense to me, I guess. Anyways, uh, I, I want to read this really quickly because I think it's really a good way to put it. it. Just kind of encapsulates a lot of what you're saying. So in the essay, you say the commodity exists in an in-between state, both real and not real. For this reason, because it is a false presence, a ghostly form, it transforms human producers into ghosts in a process of reification. So I think this is such a cool observation to draw out, though. Um, so, like, good job, Thanks. I guess, first of all. But uh, <laughs> second of all, yeah, <laughs> it, it's so cool because I think it, it kind of demonstrates the, the, the perversity of the commodity, like commodity fetishism. Because not only is this sort of like, okay, it, it's a false presence and you're putting it in a place where you ought not to, right? You're, uh, you're, you're kind of thinking of a thing um, in sort of like a, a sacramental way. It's, uh, it's proceeding beyond what it actually is and its use value and its exchange value. And like not only that though, but it also diminishes in some ways like the humanity of the people that create it. So it's like, it's a fake thing to begin with um, that you're putting in a sacramental place, which is idolatry, right? But it's also it's also doing harm, I think, to the people that are even making it. And I think that's such a profound point that I don't think you can make without you couldn't make without uh, without Christianity, without Marx and without Derrida all kind of triangulated here together. Um, I think it uh, it ends up being a really um, I don't know uh, the the way that you put it here. I think um, to me stresses why commodity fetishism and like understanding the production of things and, and while this is actually really important uh it, not only is it a, a religious problem it's a material problem and it's all just really jacked up it was really interesting because i i didn't really set out when i was writing this to kind of come back to that piece of alienation um that wasn't really in the the road plan i guess at the beginning but that's really where it landed and i found that pretty fascinating yeah so that that bit about alienation it's um it really ties in within the framework of fetishism and this idea of like yeah like this masked sort of um uh reality that we we're not actually living as we ought to i guess and um sort of hitting on that from all these different angles um uh, another sort of part of that, I guess, was that if if the fetish is a world of um, you know social masking, then the alternative to that is social transparency. And uh, if maybe I could just read this quote from Capital, which I um, use in the paper, but this this image that Marx gives of um, you know. Uh, a non-alienated society, a society that's not ruled by commodity fetishism in that way that sort of makes people subject to these artificial things, money being the primary one. Um, this is his, his description of a world where that's not the case. Um, he says, the religious reflections of the real world can in any case vanish only when the practical relations of everyday life between others and between humanity and nature, generally present themselves to humanity in a transparent and rational form. The veil is not removed from the countenance of the social life process until it becomes production by freely associated producers and stands under their conscious and planned control. And I just thought 
you know, that's, to me, that's an image of, you know, uh, social friendship, which is the word that Pope Francis uses in Fratelli Tutti. It's this vision of, um, of complete, uh, you know, transparency in relations between people where no longer is, are these, you know, sort of alienated, um, abstracted identities, the things that rule us, but that we are actually dependent on um, others in this very real embodied way. Uh, and, you know, that's, that passage is a vision I can get behind as a Christian. So um, I hope others would feel that way too. Yeah, well, maybe uh, to bring it home here, we could return to that issue of apophaticism as a way to to kind of get there, too, because I think you present a compelling case that there is something, you know, you mentioned uh, what can Christianity give to Marxism, and maybe it can't exactly give it apophaticism, <laughs> but like um, it, it could <laughs> give it something like that, maybe, or uh, at least uh, for Christians who are informed by Marxism. Um, apophaticism is a, a really compelling thing in light of your analysis. So, you know, you draw from that tradition. You also draw especially from Marika Rose, who we've had on the show a few times, um, to kind of articulate that apophaticism. And I like the way that you bring it up as, you know, the apophatic tradition is one that's constantly saying no, 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 right? Like refusing uh, the, the names of God or refusing the kinds of things that we project onto God. The, I guess the fetishized images of God really in a significant way um, how do you think you, there might be a kind of political apophaticism that that doesn't sort of, uh, you know, retreat into always just uh, <laughs> saying, well, we've got the true God over here, so don't worry, we'll solve capitalism. But on the contrary, it's this way of um, constantly tearing down the divinity of, of the commodity form or money or vi value under capitalism. How does that apophaticism come together for you? Yeah, that's that's. Uh pretty good characterization of how it does come together. Um, it's uh, <laughs> um, the, the sort of metaphor uh, I guess I was using in the paper was um, if, if Marxism is the sort of critical science of perception of, you know, this penetrating eye that can um, kind of see beyond that mask or the fetish um, that apophaticism in this material or political sense is sort of almost the precondition for that critical seeing that um, it, it does negate and it does say no and it does that in reference to that religious world of capitalism. Um, but the key part, I think, uh, for, for Marx especially um, and for this, the way that I'm using this idea of apophaticism is that um, it doesn't stop at that sort of passive or contemplative phase, but it, it's an active seeing, it's an active perception. Um, and so it must sort of end in this, um, as apophaticism does, it's not uh, supposed to stop just at a negation, but it's supposed to negate the negation, which is almost exactly, um, you know, this form of Hegelian dialectic that Marx uses all the time. Um, and so it we're meant to sort of transcend this, the limit of uh, this religious world of capitalism, which appears to us as this, you know, inescapable world. You can't see beyond it in any way because it's so pervasive. Um, but 
uh, I was trying to use apophaticism in this way that, uh, you know, it's um, Enrique Dussel calls it um, this kind of apophaticism is atheism vis-a-vis that religious system of the fetish. And so it's almost like this uh, precondition of tearing down before that before we can sort of um, critically perceive and, and build up to the, this next level. Um, and that practical part that I mentioned, it's, uh, Dussel says it's, um, you know, you don't do this just to tear down the religion of capitalism. You do it in order to have responsibility to the poor. You do it in order to liberate the oppressed. It's, um, and, and these things become sort of, it's the same motion of, um, tearing down the fetish, critically perceiving the mask and what it is and unveiling uh, this world beneath it, these are all the same process and the same motion. Um, and so it's, you know, I, <laughs> toward the end, I was like, I don't know if I'm, you know, if this can even be called apophaticism anymore, but it's, um, for me, it was a useful way to get there from a Christian standpoint of, um, uh, yeah, as a way of um, uniting with this uh, Marxist criticism. Well, I think it works. I think you pulled it off. Uh, it is really fun. There is so much stuff that we didn't get a chance to talk about uh, a lot that I would love to talk more about. I guess we'll have to find some other way to do that. <laughs> but it's a great article. And uh, man, I'm just thinking about all these other connections. Uh, I encourage people to read it. There's so much happening in it. But that apophaticism piece is always, uh, I don't know, since I read it, it's one I've been thinking more about not being a theologically minded person myself, for the most part. Now I'm kind of finding myself thinking about theological themes. So uh, thank you, Daniel. Um, it's really fun to, to have you on the show, and we're really grateful to be able to hear a little bit more about the essay. Uh, is there anything you want to plug at the end? Where can people uh, find uh, work that you want them to find, projects you want them to know about, etc.? cetera? Yeah, um, you can find me on Twitter. Um, not super active there, but um, that's probably the best place. Uh, I am at do the Dan. D-O-T-H-E-D-A-N. Um, it's very stupid, but uh, that's that's where I am. Um, yeah, I've, uh, you know, I don't do this um, for uh, a living. It's not my primary thing, but um, I've been lucky enough to have these opportunities. So um, uh, most of what I do will, will probably be found there. Um, uh, yeah, my, my only plugs at the end are just um, for Christians not to shy away from the Marxist critique of religion, um, because it can actually help us be better Christians, I think. Um, and, uh, you know, everyone should read Marx. It's, he's not a, not someone you should pass up. He's, uh, he's incredibly dynamic and, um, you know, really able to shift to whatever, uh, problems that, uh, we're currently facing. And so, you know, not in a very like straightforward or sort of uh, doctrinal way, but just in in the kind of the way that he thinks um, can can really be useful to uh, whatever we're dealing with. Um, so yeah, <laughs> I think uh, you're the first guest we've had at the end who chose to use their plug as a, a way to plug <laughs> Karl Marx specifically. So that's fantastic, and uh, I think proof positive that. 
maybe uh you know good good apophatic christians should, are are quicker to think of marx than uh than some of the marxists that we know <laughs> um great to have you daniel and uh looking forward to talking to you again sometime in the future yeah, thanks guys great to be here Thanks for listening to The Magnificast. If you like what you heard, you can do what Matt already told you and uh, go to our Patreon at patreon.com slash The Magnificast where you can uh, support our podcast and find another secret podcast that's very fun and silly and lots of other stuff too. You can, uh, let's see, find us on Twitter at The Magnificast. You can email us at themagnificast at gmail.com. We still have a Redbubble store with all kinds of stickers over there if you're into that sort of thing. Uh, our music is by Amaria Armstrong and our outro is by the Illogical Spoon. See you next week. I don't want to get up for church in the morning, church in the morning, souls alive. Heaven come to earth and there won't be no church. We'll meet down by the riverside. There we'll swim with all creation. Never get tired, never bored. Don't worry, someday there'll be no dam between us and our Lord. Jackson, keep your hoods up, you keep your hoods up, and you stay up late. Jackson, you keep your hoods up, well you keep your hoods up, and you stay up late. Oh, don't mind a cold night, but we might mind if you leave too soon. So come on now, it's still early, at least I would have.